1: Back in the late 90s, for a brief period of time I did a few-
2: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
0: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right?
1: search and rescue missions that left me disturbed. It's not that I couldn't handle the job or even pass the training. It was the result of two specific search and rescue missions that I'm going to tell you about. The first being a young man who had just turned 21, decided to go out by himself during a blizzard up here in Colorado when he was strongly advised against it. We can't control people and tell them what not and what to do. We prefer to let people make their own judgement calls. And wherever that leads them to is where it leads them to. Unfortunately, for this young man it led to his death. He was reported missing. I wanna say about 48 hours, after he had gone. Nobody could find him. The conditions of his travel and disappearance were bittersweet. Having a pro and a con. The good news is, the blizzard we had predicted did not hit the area in question. To where we had a search, or where his body had disappeared to. But the con was is that he still disappeared, and finding his body would prove to be worse than we could imagine. After this young man was reported missing, we weren't quite sure if he was dead yet. Which is why we went full on with our search. The search lasted 9 whole days, when we finally caught trail of him. Making it easier since the blizzard didn't hit the area giving us more mobility and accessibility to areas beyond normal reach. The thing that struck us as very odd at first, was that his scent ended on the trail that he said he was going down. Our dogs followed it to a specific point and then stopped. As if the trail just suddenly stopped with it. I'm trying to think back, and remember how exactly we found his body. Which might be a little fuzzy in my memory, so forgive me for that. But the story goes that at the end of the ninth day, we ended up finding him and not one piece. But he says, he was found on a ledge about 1,200 feet higher up in elevation than the trail he was on. Virtually impossible for anybody to climb, in those winter conditions. Not even having the right equipment. We're talking about a 90 degree vertical wall covered in thick ice and other dangerous elements. Making it impossible to scale. His body was found at the very top, and here is where it gets gruesome. We found him in pieces, in a circular pattern, his chest was by itself. His waist was also by itself. His thighs, legs and feet, forearms and arms and hands all severed separately with perfect knife precision. The wounds were not cauterized, they were surgically and precisely cut. However, he was dismembered. It was done by somebody who knows what they were doing. Even the bone and joints were cut at very specific points. And each piece of his dismembered body was placed roughly 50 feet away from the other piece. In one large circle, buried beneath about 2 feet of snow. The other piece we'll never quite figure out, is we never found his skull or head. Every other piece of his body was there. Without clothes by the way. We have no idea what happened to any of his gear or clothing. His dismembered pieces were completely naked and left exposed to the temperatures. What it had appeared to be as his cause of death was somehow unknown. But after he had died or presumed to have died, he was dismembered somehow. And then taken in pieces and laid in the circular pattern. It's very possible he might have died from hypothermia and threw off his clothes and then froze but that still doesn't explain the dismemberment or how he managed to climb a 1,200-foot cliff wall. If memory serves me correctly, the autopsy reports proved inconclusive. To how in which he died. But personally I'll never get over the manner in which he died, and how he was found. That kind of stuff just sticks with you for a long time. The second search and rescue story that I wanted to tell you about happened with an older man who was 78 in great shape, mind you. Very active, very fit for his age and very mentally well. Wasn't suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia at all. He ate very clean. Was a very well-known individual in the community he lived in. Many loved him, and had nothing but good things to say. Until one day in early July he went missing. Like the 21-year-old from the last story. He too went on a solo hike like many outdoor enthusiasts nowadays do. After he had been reported missing for X amount of time, the search was called. This guy, we searched even farther higher and lower and found no traces. It's as if he had just vanished, but here for this story is where things take a weird twist. The dogs happened to catch his scent and led us to an area not only completely off the trail but in an area that didn't make any sense for him to be in. And an area where the brush and forest was incredibly dense and thick making it near impossible for a 78 year old man without heavy equipment to work through now the dogs didn't get us through the woods they led us to this area of woods and then stopped and began whining wow now you're ready for the twist i wasn't here on that search and rescue team for this segment of the story but many of my close friends who at the time were my colleagues were And this is the only time that I can ever think of that the search and rescue team was called off indefinitely for this man's case. As sad as that is, the report was that they were all nearly jumped and ambushed by a group of large 10 to 12 feet hairy wild men with spears and rocks. Some of them throwing longs in the direction of my colleagues. While others began screaming, banging on trees and making all sorts of ruckus as a warning. You better leave this area now or you're going to die. Many of the same friends, when they recount this to me you can see and tell the terror in their voices and faces. Having to relive this memory. Unfortunately for this older man his sent trail led right into this area. Where these things or wild men were. As everybody called them. I wish that when I signed up for this job somebody could have had the decency to sit me down and explain to me that i was going to encounter things that would defy all rationale and explanation that they could explain that i'm gonna see things that don't make sense hear things experience things hear stories about things that aren't supposed to exist now all i can do is share my experiences in hopes to educate those that are willing to listen I'm a park ranger, legally I can't give away too much info by I work close to the Adirondacks. I don't know if this happens all over the country or not, hell maybe all over the world. But I'm giving you all this life-saving advice just in case this isn't a local phenomena. My name is Peter, well not really. But for the sake of this story it is. I'm not giving out my real info because when I started this job they made me sign an NDA. I started as a park ranger 6 months ago. They showed me the ropes pretty fast. And due to COVID a lot of people went camping this year as a way to hang out with friends. As people tend to do, they would drink and get themselves hurt or lost, so we went on a lot of search and rescue. If I'm being honest, more searches than rescues. I still remember the first day I learned about these women. We got called to find a couple in their 20s who wandered away from their group for a few hours, so we had to go find them. I went out with my supervisor, who will call Jane. She's the toughest bitch I know. Won't take shot from anyone and can easily kick my ass. So anyway it was around 4pm. We're deep in the woods closest to their campsite. The couple probably went off for a quickie and got lost. People do that all the time here. So we walk for a while and out of my peripheral I see a figure, who I assumed was the woman we were looking for. I saw dark brown hair and blue from her clothes. Help me, please. I could hear her say weakly. I assumed it was her, it sounded close to my ear but B was yards away from me. As I went to turn to face the girl, Jane grabbed my head and turns it back forward. You don't want to do that. She says as she continues to push me forward. But there's a girl, I said as I tried to turn my head again. She turns it back forward with more force this time. I'm aware newbie. Keep walking forward. She says with a sharp shove forward to my shoulders. What's your name? Jane called into the forest, her harsh voice echoed in the trees. The girl didn't answer the question. Help me, please. I really need help the girl pleads. Jane and I continue walking forward. Tell me your name and I'll help you. Jane commands. Please I just need your help so bad. Come on Peter please. The girl begged. I stopped in my tracks and looked at Jane. She said my name. She might know me we have to go help her. I protested. If you want to go you're going alone. And you won't come back. I'm not about to disappear because you want to play hero and damsel, she said with anger in her voice. I listened to my commands. And I'll be honest, at the time I felt guilty, but now I'm glad I did. So we found the missing couple, returned them safely to the camp, and Jane and I went back to the station. Wanna tell me what that was about? I asked Jane angrily. It's long story, she said dismissively. I pressed the topic. I've got time. Tell me. I challenged her. She sighed and made me promise not to tell civilians, but I don't feel right keeping it to myself. I don't know what they are honestly. My superior didn't even know and he worked here 50 years. Day one he told me of a girl needs help. Don't look at her until she tells you her name. Why? They don't have names. They don't know how to make one up. Or maybe they don't know what the question means maybe they even think they're so powerful they don't need one. But they will do anything to get you to look at them. Ask for help, ask for sex. Say they know you, your mom, details of your family. Anything to get you to look. She somberly spun the tale. What happens if you look? I asked her. I had the same question. My superior Felix didn't know either. He does now but isn't really around to tell. All we know is if they're able to get you to look, you walk off and you don't come back," she said. What happened to Felix? I asked. When I said his name I was pain flicker across her face. The only time I saw her express anything other than anger until this point. He, he looked. We were looking for someone's stupid lost dog. He was in front of Maya, and from behind us we heard a woman whisper the name Felix. When that didn't work the voice changed to a child's voice and we heard a panicked little girl call out gampa it was imitating his granddaughter who had drowned in the swimming pool four months earlier i couldn't stop him he turns and whispers aubrey i knew the exact moment he laid his eyes on it his pupils got huge like he was rolling and his eyes glazed over it was like he was on autopilot as he started walking forward i screamed for him to stop But I didn't move, I didn't turn around. I kept walking forward like a coward. We never found his body. We never will either. I don't know what it does, but if you see it you're never seen again. All we found was his dog tag from the army and his wedding ring hanging on a branch at the top of a tree branch. She finished her tail and walked to the cooler. Grabbed herself a bottle of Jameson and drank it straight. So why doesn't everyone know about this? I asked her. She shrugged. Better them than us. She callously remarked. What the hell do you mean? I asked her in anger. Look. It needs people. For whatever reason. If it doesn't find people out there what's gonna happen? It'll come here, then to the suburbs. They'll be everywhere. Sure it sucks some civilians will die but it's better Han seeing what happens when they lose their supply. When she told me me this I was angry but I couldn't argue. The second time I saw it was even scarier. A young man fell into a ditch and couldn't get out so we had to go help him. As we walked to the location I saw one in my peripheral, but it was in the direction we needed to go. When the hell do we do? I asked Jane in a panic. I didn't want to get near that thing. We walk. It's okay to get close, just don't look. She warns me. We we walk. Hey can you help me? It asks in a childish voice. I look at the ground to not be tempted to peek. Come on guys really. I'm hungry. Help me. It begs. It's only 20 feet away now. I keep walking close. Peter come on help. Jane. Someone help me. It whines. As I pass it, I feel cold. Like I just opened up my freezer. It has a smell to it, like dirty pond water, and it felt bad. Like a ball of anxiety you feel when your plane takes off. Or the rush you get when you go down the hill of a roller coaster. My subconscious knew this thing should not be. My body gets covered goosebumps as I watch my feet crunch the fall leaves, but the goosebumps are not from the cold. We pass it and it cried. Come on? Where are you going? I want to go home. It pleads. Eventually it stops asking us to help it. Maybe it got too far away and we couldn't hear it. Maybe it gave up because we knew it won't crack. I don't know. I don't really understand this thing, or maybe things much at all. I have many more stories of these things, but this isn't story time. Maybe I'll post some other times if they don't bust my ass for posting this. I'm at a public library hoping they can't trace this back to me. Jane won't snitch. I trust her. In the six months I've worked here, 100 people went missing without a trace. 100. The cops pay us off to say it was an accident or animal or drowning. And that's only the area I survey. I can't imagine how many statewide, countrywide, worldwide. At least if an animal eats you, it'll leave bones as evidence. This thing got 100 people. I can't stand by and let this keep happening. I won't be complicit in people going missing like this. So please, especially around the Adirondacks. If a girl in the woods is alone and needs help, or wants to talk to you, don't look until it gives you a name. I don't know what happens when it gets you, I never want to find out, and I never want you to find out either. Stay safe and take care of each other, please. I did some volunteer work for the forest service industry in Minnesota back in 2010 and 2011. I usually am one to try and stay out of government and military affairs. But I'm pretty sure based on the things that I heard, there is a large military base or transfer center underneath a portion of the park that I worked at. Let me explain. Much of my time volunteering, I would spend it shadowing some of the other rangers because for a while it's what I was convinced I wanted to do. I remember there was one time, I was doing rounds with a fellow ranger and me, being in training was still learning all the ropes and this is the first of many times this happened. But I would hear this incredibly loud rumbling from underneath me. It was the equivalent to being maybe 20 or 30 feet, above a New York subway. Although in New York I don't think you can hear the New York subway beneath you because the streets and the city life is so loud. But I'm trying to put your imagination there to where it sounded like a train going underneath you. I know the thought of an underground train isn't all that exciting, but there were other sounds that I heard that resembled that and would make me think otherwise. I'm not saying that the sound I heard that was coming from underneath me was indeed a train. It was just this incredibly loud rumbling, like some sort of heavy machinery. Something was going on and to my knowledge there are no known military government or any other kind of buildings within miles of that area. Randomly all throughout different days I would hear everything from loud machine humming to banging to other sorts of weird machinery sounds. There's a few times it sounded like I was hearing a stick of dynamite go off. Far below my feet I would even sometimes feel the ground shake very lightly. But the weird thing is any time I would ever bring it up to one of the rangers, They would either ignore what I said and act like I didn't mention anything at all. Or they would quickly change the subject being very careful not to acknowledge what I had said. I thought it was super weird. It was as if they knew something they couldn't mention anything about. Now I don't know if this is some conspiracy among rangers or if there's actually a military or government base underneath this area of the park. But it makes you wonder what really goes on in these parks when nobody else is around, when nobody else is listening, when people, the staff, the rangers all know things that they're told to keep quiet on. None of this now that I'm older and more aware of the things that truly go on in the world, none of these things surprise me anymore. And in fact I'm now more confident than ever that there probably is something being hidden underneath that park. For the longest time, my friend worked as a trail ranger at a large national park. A trail ranger is basically a ranger, only with considerably less judicial power. He can't arrest you or anything, but if you're in an illegal blind or hunting stand, he had the power to call in actual cops before ripping down whatever unlicensed hide you've constructed. So this one time, He's accompanying an actual forest ranger and taking down unauthorized hunting cameras and feeders. The actual ranger was an older guy who started to feel unwell towards the early afternoon, so he headed back on his own. It was like an hour's ride on an ATV, and left my buddy to finish up. Just as he was almost done, my friend starts to hear voices coming through the trees. It's important to keep in mind that he was way, way off the beaten path at this point, so it's not like he expected there to be anyone around. But it occurs to him that these might be the people putting up the illegal cameras and blinds in the first place. He calls out to them, demanding to know who they are, but the voices just go quiet and there's not a sound to be heard other than the occasional birdsong. It's also starting to get dark by that time, so he starts heading back towards the trail where his ATV is parked. When he finds it and tries to start it up, it won't budge. That's when he noticed that the ATV battery has been torn out and taken by someone, not some prank by the older ranger, someone has actually disabled his means of escape. The way he tells it, this obviously made him extremely nervous, especially since he'd already heard voices in the area. He radios back into the ranger station he's based at, basically telling them that he needed someone to come pick him up. They reply they'll have someone out to him within an hour, but when he asks about the older ranger, they tell him he hasn't arrived back yet. Again, this made him really nervous since the ranger should've easily arrived back by that point. He settled down and started a small fire as the sun went down, but before long he heard those same voices again. They're not happy, at all. He said it sounded like they were in the middle of a vicious argument with one guy angry and yelling while the other sounded frightened and apologetic. He listens for a minute or two before calling out into the darkness, asking if anyone needed help. The way he tells it, they must have heard him. He could hear them, so they must have heard them in return. But they didn't react, like they were too absorbed with their disagreement to answer him. My friend then radios back into the ranger's station for a progress report. They replied saying they were having a little trouble finding the trail he was on, but that they wouldn't be much longer. The older ranger however, still hadn't arrived back at the station. About 5 or 10 more minutes go by when my trail ranger friend begins to hear the same angry voices start up again. He decides to walk towards them, hoping maybe he can prevent a potential assault and maybe even get his hands on some food and water. He walked in their direction but the voices seemed to be getting further away, no matter how much he tried to close in on them. Finally, after like 20 minutes of walking, he gave up and hiked back to his fire. It's about then that he got a radio call and they said the older ranger guy has been found passed out covered in vomit, having fallen off his ATV. He was being taken to the hospital and that had taken priority over finding my friend. I mean that's understandable. But my friend is getting kind of frustrated at this point, he's out in the woods, on his own, and it's getting real chilly out. Then the voices came back. He's pretty bored at this point, and he's convinced these guys don't want any company. So he said he just sat there in the darkness, listening to them argue over something. He's picking up little phrases here and there when the voices begin to shout. Things like, well it wasn't yours to take or I don't care, it's mine God damn it! stuff like that. He says he assumed it was two hunters, maybe arguing over a kill, but there was a good chance they were blaming each other for the missing equipment that my friend and the ranger had confiscated. He heard the argument get louder, as one of the hunters shouted something unintelligible. Then, out of nowhere. Bang! A single gunshot echoes through the woods. He immediately doused his fire, ran a couple hundred meters into the trees, then hid in a thicket. He said he waited there for as long as he could stand it, hearing absolutely nothing but his own heavy breathing until he saw the lights of an ATV. He told the guy picking him up everything that had happened and they called it into the ranger station. They had people looking for three hours out there, but not a single thing was found by any of the rangers. They came back the next day with state police and tracker dogs. It only took about an hour before a shallow grave was found. In it was a was a long dead corpse of a man who had clearly been shot in the forehead. Thing was, it was a skeleton that had been there for years and years. So either the argument he heard just ended with a bang and both parties went home last night, or he heard the murder of someone from years ago. I don't really believe the last part, and to be honest, neither does he, but it certainly makes for a creepy ending to the story. But the really scary part for me is that there's every chance that the gunshot he heard that night was yet another murder. And that the body will be found in a similar way, by someone unwary ranger, like some horrible time loop that'll never end. One of the strangest things I have ever come across in my job as a ranger was a full staircase. In the middle of the woods. There was nothing else around it to show that it was a part or had been of any original structure. No walls to suggest, there was once a house there and there were far too many trees anyway. And finding that it wasn't an exclusive experience was even stranger. Apparently coming across a staircase in the middle of nowhere that has no purpose wasn't an unusual occurrence. But it didn't make the experience any less weird and creepy. I stood and stared for a long time. The other thing that made the whole thing even more unnerving was just how quiet it was. If finding a set of stone steps, and yes, they looked like something straight out of Game of Thrones which wasn't odd enough. I would have imagined, there would have been signs of life. Birds on the stone, bugs even moths growing. But there was nothing, nothing at all. I couldn't resist climbing them myself. Even though they were fairly high and unsteady. I couldn't help myself and of course that was when I came across the most disturbing thing of all. Because until now the stairs had been an oddity, a curiosity. But now they became something from a nightmare. Because at the very top, on the very last step, was blood. Now, I will add why I was out in the very remote part of the forest. We were helping to look for a missing woman. Search and rescue and the police were doing bulk of the job. But since it was a vast area and they needed all hands on deck we all were in. Although she was never found, after I got back to the base and reported no sign of her but told the team leader about the stairs. The first thing I was asked was did you climb them? When I replied yes, she told me to never ever do that again. And also informed me that now, The missing woman would never be found. When I tried to ask her how any of this was connected, she shooed me out of the office and told me to not mention what I did to anybody. And if I did, I would be risking our lives and that was the end of that. I'm going to begin by saying that I live in a national park. I had a teen pregnancy so my dad has always been like an older brother to me always playing pranks on me, but this story he told me was deadly serious. He is an avid runner, has been a runner for 25 years plus, and loves to run in the mountains.
0: Hey folks, I'm Mark Maron from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues
1: He told me that one day he went for a run around the lake in my village. Now, my village is at the bottom of a valley, next to a lake, surrounded by mountains and forests. Dad was running along a path through the forest one day with my godfather, when they ended up going off the path. They found themselves in a clearing and as far as their eyes could see, there were spooky dolls hanging from the trees. All kinds of weird voodoo shit suspended from the trees. There was nobody around, but he got an intensely bad vibe from the place. He and my godfather exchanged a let's get the F out of here look, and ran away. He knows the forests and the area like the back of his hand, but he's never been able to find it since, and to this day has no idea where exactly he was. I don't go walking through those woods anymore, I always feel like someone's watching me. I was out with one of the dogs one day. In one of the very remote parts of the park that I work in as a ranger. There are literally hundreds of miles of forest, and we were about as far in as you could get. Surrounding the edge of the trees wherever we were were mountains. Some of them with vertical drops that made them look almost man-made. Before you get to the full-size mountains, there were some much smaller amounts of rocks. I say smaller and they were still the size of a three or four-story building, but smaller in comparison to the size of the main ones. And again several of these had entirely vertical frontage and were almost completely smooth too. This meant, even an extremely sure-footed creature would not be able to shimmy up there, unless they were maybe Spider-Man. And yet, whenever we went over that way the dogs would always go nuts. Ranger canines are also often trained as search animals and have a very keen sense of smell and aptitude for knowing when something is amiss. They would, always without fail gave the indication that there was something on top of those smaller structures. Despite it being almost entirely impossible. One day, the local search and rescue team was needing some practice and they had the chopper out. Since we are good buddies with the guys I mentioned this particular spot that the dogs always go mad over. We all had a good chuckle about it, and they decided to land the chopper. There is, if nothing else it was a good place as any to do a dummy rescue. I asked if I could come along just to intrigue my curiosity. And do you know what we found? Bones, nothing else but several piles of human bones. Not full skeletons either but at least four different bodies worth. Three adults, one child, three male, one female all varying in how long they'd been there. From what the medical examiner could tell there was no way on or off that ledge. No signs of anything else having ever been there. We never did find an explanation for that one. Sunrise on Saturday, September 23, 1972. An experienced climber by the name of Neil Olson is leading an ascent of a difficult section on the 24th pitch of the Nose Route on El Capitan. Sometimes known as El Cap, El Capitan is a vertical rock formation in Yosemite National Park, located on the north side of Yosemite Valley, near its western end. The granite monolith is about 3,000 feet from base to summit along its tallest face, and is a popular objective for rock climbers. The aforementioned Nose Route is one of the original technical climbing routes up El Capitan. Once considered impossible to climb, El Capitan is now the standard for big wall climbing. Just as the group passed Camp V, a set of ledges about 900 feet below the top of the cliff, a horrifically unfortunate accident occurs. Somehow, Olsen pulls a 125-pound boulder loose from a wedging just above him. And he watches in terror as the huge rock begins to fall in his direction. His life flashes before his eyes as he tries to dodge it, but the heavy stone structure glances off his plastic helmet, still hard enough to stun him. The boulder then falls back and over him before smashing into his right leg and breaking it in several places. Olson is rendered completely immobile and an agonizing pain, Terrified that might bleed to death as a result of numerous compound fractures to his leg. By 7.30 that very same morning, Yosemite search and rescue officer Pete Thompson was helping to organize one of the most terrifyingly demanding rescue attempts in the history of North American mountaineering. Pete had assembled an A-team of six local climbers in his office, their mission being to develop an initial rescue plan, estimate equipment needs, And identify other technical climbers they wished to take with them. The idea was to lower one of the rescue team from the summit, over 900 feet down to the severely wounded Neil Olson, who would no doubt be overjoyed to see them. Then Olson and his rescuer would then be lowered to waiting medical staff on the valley floor, almost 2000 feet below. At the time, only one other long lowering rescue even remotely similar to this one had ever been performed, in Grand Teton National Park in August of 1967, just over five years previously. In total, 18 brave, selfless men and one woman would be flown to the top of El Cap that day. The team's task was made even harder as a result of a disastrous incident earlier that summer, one that almost crippled their ability to mount any serious rescue attempt. Just seven weeks before, shortly after midnight on the 1st of August, 1972, a drunken 17-year-old reprobate had set fire to the thousands of tons of stacked hay in the California state government's horse barn. The barn and stables were set alight and burned to the ground, as were another seven older wooden structures in the area, in what was described as a manic episode of serial arson. One of these highly flammable civilian construction corps-era buildings happened to be holding the valley's search and rescue equipment cache. Hundreds of climbing ropes, webbing, pitons, bolts, carabiners, sleeping bags, rain gear, and other such vital equipment all went up in smoke. Thompson knew they were short on the right sorts of equipment to pull off a rescue of this size and complexity. To this day, a now long-retired Pete Thompson is not exactly sure how the park ended up with some of what it got that day. The most interesting were the large rolls of one half-inch rope. Tubbs Cordage, a yachting and sailing line manufacturing company in the San Diego area, had generously sent two 4,000-foot-long rolls and three 1,200-foot-long rolls of gold lawn, each tightly wound around a wooden spindle. Although plenty strong, the rope was not intended to take the kind of abuse it would be subjected to, and its use proved an almost fatal mistake to those who would later use it in an attempt to save lives the ropes were driven up by local police departments to nearby el toro marine air station they were then flown to el capitan meadow in two large twin rotor ch-46 helicopters sometimes called chinooks by civilians other retail outdoor companies in the bay area such as the ski hut and the north face sent actual solid climbing rope as well as a seemingly endless supply of colored nylon webbing hundreds of carabiners over a hundred bolts, dozens of pitons, piton hammers, water bottles, dried food, and other long accessory lines and cords. These purchases were all picked up by the Bay Area Mountain Rescue Unit and transported by the California Highway Patrol. Before they returned to their home base at El Toro that evening, a team from the local Marine Corps bases flew even more vital equipment and manpower to the staging point at the summit of El Capitan. There was a pile of equipment on the peak that night that had to be sorted and then placed in the right spot for the next morning. Rescuers worked tirelessly through the night to sift and sort through the mess of gear, determining which would prove the most useful in their rescue attempt. During the height of the stretcher lowering later in the day, several hundred people stood along the road and in the meadow, at the base of El Cap, most with their binoculars pointed toward the light brown cliff morbidly observing the ensuing rescue attempt. Six of the Camp 4 search and rescue site climbers rappelled down to Camp V that first afternoon. Up top, the climbers knotted together enough ropes to create two 3,000-foot lengths of cordage. One rope made a directional change at the victim's tiny ledge far below. The other ran straight from the final lip of El Capitan to Olson's litter, attended by Camp 4 superstar Jim Bridwell. Although it took more than 36 hours to fully orchestrate, once underway, the rescue attempt took just 90 minutes for the pair to be lowered down the remaining 1,800 feet of sheer cliff face. Luckily, the entire thing went off without so much as a hitch. The five still on the ledge, as well as Olsen's partner, elected to come down later that night, after dark, when energy and focus had been recuperated. Algarza the park's chief electrician, built a huge light bank and illuminated almost the entire face of the Great Cliff, just one small example of the gargantuan amount of work and effort that went into rescuing Neil Olson. Neil's leg healed, and despite the consequential injuries incurred from the accident, he continued to climb for the next four decades. But he never, ever forgot the horrors of what he had endured on El Capitan that day. Nor did he forget the brave and valiant efforts of those who risked their own lives to ensure his own survival. I'm a rather introverted person. It's not that I avoid nor despise interaction. I just prefer to keep to myself and do things my own way. This, with my love of nature and the outdoors in general, leads me to often, foolishly, venture out hikes, camping, and backpacking trips by myself. Which wouldn't be terrible if I didn't also abstain from informing any one of my plans. Three years an in infantryman and having backpacked through the Adirondacks in winter time, you could easily say that I was cocky and far overconfident in my abilities. That all changed after I took a trip, well tried too, through some lesser-traveled parts of the Rockies. I had gotten stationed at Foot Carson. And was excited for the first opportunity to take to the mountains for an extended weekend that opportunity came when we received a four day for whatever reason not important i packed up my bag about 50 pounds with all the supplies i would need for three nights i was warned during reception that if i was to go out for an extended period a pistol is recommend as black bear and mountain lions aren't rare to run into heeding their warning I also brought along my Glock 20 which gave me 15 rounds of 10 millimeters. plenty I thought for any issues I would run into on my adventure. I thought. I drove out Wednesday night parked up in a lot and slept in my car. Woke up about 30 minutes before sunrise and started on my way. I had decided that I didn't want to see a single person my entire trip, so I, in my arrogance planned to not follow a single trail, taking only unbroken parts of every mountain i was going to summit as i was making my way out the parking lot i saw a sign park is closed after 6 pm no one is to remain on the mountains anyone found will be removed and fined i saw this as the perfect chance to practice concealment in a hostile environment the first day i made decent progress about 12 to 13 miles I was trying to get as deep as possible into the mountains to avoid an early termination of my weekend trip. Around sunset I began looking for a place to lay low. I found a decent spot to hunker down and began to create a concealed position. I wrapped it up, ate some food, and slid into my sleeping bag just before sunset. I awoke to the sounds of people trudging through the woods and saw beams of light cutting across the trees. I heard what sounded like two park rangers chatting about their days and moaning about the cold. I stayed still and silent until the noises and voices faded. Rather proud of myself, I wiggled into a more comfortable position and slept till sunrise. Dawn broke, I packed, and went along my way. Following the rough path I had plotted. I covered about eight more miles then chose a place to stay. I did my preparations and settled down for another good night's sleep. But tonight I would learn why the curfew was set. I once again woke to the noise of snapping twigs and shifting gravel. I immediately thought that it was another group of rangers, and was wondering how I could have planned my route so poorly and close to main trails that I ran into them two nights in a row. But it didn't sound like the rangers from the night before. Instead of heavy, slow and rhythmic beating of the rangers' thick-soled boots, it sounded more like scampering, a pitter-patter of small feet. There were no heavy beams thrown from the powerful flashlights of the night before. And the deep irritated voices were replaced with childlike giggling and hushed whispers. Instinctively, I froze, trying to collect as much information as I could using my ears and whatever I could get with my eyes. Shadows flickered in the darkness, a crescent moon being the only light, and the giggling and whispers grew louder. The noise's skittering feet seemed to be circling me now, drawing slowly closer. I sat up now, hello? I said to the darkness. Fingering my glock in its holster, if training had taught me anything, it was to always sleep with your weapon. The noises stopped, not a sound a sound to be heard save for the swaying of the trees in the cold night wind. I reached for my bag and pulled out a flashlight, pointed it at the last placed I had heard a noise and flicked the switch. Illuminated in front of me was a small girl, no older than 9 or 10, naked and wearing naught but the skull of a doe as a mask. Her limbs were contorted, skewed I would say. Joints facing directions they never should but looking completely natural. And a large jagged scar on her chest where her heart should be. I saw her for only a split second before she dove for the shelter of a tree away from my light. Hello? Are you okay? I called out to her, slowly making my way over to her, hand resting on my pistol. I don't wanna hurt you, are you lost? I could hear whispering echo through the woods around me. Very few lines audible he got gun. We still got him. They need someone. We need him. Give me stone a rock pelts me in the back and I whip around the light to catch a glimpse of a boy maybe eleven, naked as well but wearing what I think is a buck skull. Limbs twisted in a similar manner. We're stronger, they made sure of it. We have numbers. I'll get his back. The voices are unmistakably those of children. Another rock strikes me in the side of my head, larger than the last and I feel a warm trickle begin to run down my face. I draw my pistol. A volley of rocks ensues, some bigger, some smaller, all thrown with a strength uncharacteristic of any normal child around that age. I catch one in my light and snap a shot in his direction. The round rips through the eye of the skull mask, dropping the child where he stood. An enraged shriek resounds from the wood line as the volley picks up intensity. Frantically I search for targets but they're moving faster now and are harder to line up. Another particularity hard throw strikes me across the mouth knocking out a few teeth. I'm dazed. Thunk another rock, this time to the back of my head. I fall to my knees, dropping my flashlight and pistol. I hear one running up behind me. Clumsily I grab for my pistol, getting a hold of it and blindly firing three shot behind me. A yelp followed by the sound of a body dropping onto mountain gravel tells me I hit. Grabbing my flashlight, still shaking off the impact of the two stones I reveal the figure that ran at me. Before me was what looked like a six-year-old boy, a buck skull mask adorning his head, twisted limbs and spine, and a similar scar to the girl above his heart. I had hit him in the hips once. He cried in pain clutching at the gushing wound a large sharpened stick to his right. As I aim for a killing shot, an even larger rock with a harder throw strikes me across the temple and all goes black. I used to work myself in the forest industry service and I have my own very disturbing 411 styled story. The person who went missing in this little story, was a little 7 year old boy who went by the name of Dakota Miller. You could probably look him up but I don't know if you'll find anything. As before I wrote this up I looked and couldn't find anything I'm not sure why that is. But anyway, back in the late 90s Dakota was a regular little boy who had a loving mom and dad. Apparently what happened? It was said that the family went camping for a week I believe south of St. Louis. When the mom and dad had their back turned for just a moment. As many of these 411 cases seem to go, and just like that the little boy had vanished. It was summertime so he was seen wearing a dark blue shirt, and red shorts and sneakers. They were at the campsite, when the boy disappeared. There were no other campers nearby. No possible way he could just vanish like that. The nearest trees were easily 40 to 50 feet away. They were perfectly in the clear. It was as if he had just vanished, evaporated like he was a vapor in the air. Search and rescue went on for well over 10 days in search of this little boy. When six days, about 200 miles away they found the exact same pair of sneakers, shorts and shirt that he had been wearing the day of his disappearance. Only due to the terrain and distance of the finding, they weren't sure if these clothing correlated to the boy. After some research and DNA matching it turned to be that these were the exact same sneakers, shorts and t-shirt of Dakota who went missing only six days prior to being found at least his clothes. There was no underwear in his clothing. There was also no dirt marks, no scuffs. His clothes were just as clean and as neat as the day he had disappeared. His clothes were randomly found by an older gentleman who was out hiking that day, along the upper northern section of Arkansas. Dakota's body and his remains were never discovered. But like any 411 story the most disturbing thing is how did he go from alive to disappearing so quick? And how, where are his remains, what happened to him? And now nearly 20 years later after trying to look into it more, there's still nothing. It was inconclusive. And after I believe the 12th day of search and rescue they called it off with the only findings they had was closing. That was it as far as we know, the world he's just gone. Many years ago now, my family and I were on a road trip, going to visit Big Bend National Park down in Texas. This was way before the World Wide Web, mind you. That's important for you to know and you'll know why in a moment. We were trying to plan where to stay, having picked up several brochures for actual ranch stays in the area at the time, there were only about three or four to begin with. We narrowed them down to two, which appeared to list the very same things, Horseback riding, it's important to note here that when we made reservations, we verified that the horses would be available during our visit when we called. Swimming. Rooms with air conditioning. We wanted horseback riding and there were only two that actually offered it. One was $10 cheaper than the other one. The cheaper one, we assumed, was cheaper because it was further out in the country than the other one, which was right in the middle of town. We kind of liked the idea of the quiet desert. Neither brochure had any pictures, so we could only guess about this. Oh my, how we wish we had seen pictures. But first. You know how we selected it because it was further out of town. We had to take a coarsely graveled road to get to the ranch. The road was about 18 miles long and we got an actual flat and not just any flat, we blew a huge hole in the tire. Sure, we had a spare, But the point is that we're in the middle of the Texas desert with very little water, and it's fast approaching midday. It's actually really dangerous to be out there since you can develop heat stroke literally within about 20 minutes of being exposed to that kind of heat. The size of the hole in the tire meant that a patch was impossible. We also didn't know any numbers for local mechanics, so we're kind of panicking when this other truck comes rolling along. He eyes us up and down, seeing that we're city folk, and you can tell straight away he is nothing but contempt for us. He starts telling us all about how dangerous it is to be stuck out here in the desert. How quickly rattlesnake venom can kill you dead, how the vultures pick clean the bones of anything that falls victim to the elements out there. That's if the bandits or smugglers didn't find us first. The local guy sold us a new tire for. Are you ready for this? $150. Yep. Keep in mind that this was about 25 years ago, so imagine how much that would be now? And it wasn't like we couldn't not buy it. We had no choice, it was literally buy the tire, or face the consequences. So we paid for the tire and went on our way again. When we arrived, we gaped in horror at the scene before us. The place we chose, this cheaper one, wasn't a hotel slash ranch at all. They were actually trailers sitting on a rocky hill. I kid you not. I'm talking mobile homes, lifted and sitting on tons of rocks on hills. Sure, they were weighted down and there was a graded edge, but you had to actually climb the rocks to get to the trailer, cabin. Rocks. And you had to carefully ascend them. How a place like this ever got a business license nor have a lawsuit filed against them is beyond me. I guess in those days, I suppose, people weren't as so happy as they are now, though I do remember it was getting started good. But I digress. When we checked in, in the dining room, we were informed that the horses were not out for the summer yet, and this was in May, in South Texas, where it's summer nearly all year around. This, after we had been told that they would definitely be available on that date. Fine. We ate our dinner in the dining room, which was at the bottom of the rock hill. We went to make our way up the hill to the trailer and my foot slipped on a rock, and the next thing I knew I was falling off the rocks. My ankle was sprained. Now how in the heck was I supposed to finish climbing up there to get to the room? For that matter, how would I ever go back and forth? So we finally get to the room and I elevate my foot on the bed. I'm hot, I'm tired and I just want to sit for a few minutes, thanking God that at least this bad day is nearly over. I turn on the TV, hoping to find something relaxing to watch. We were told that the cabins had satellite TV, which was just getting started good. Unfortunately we could only pick up one channel. Was it any surprise then that the one channel we got was only in Japanese? WTF? This was the Texas desert. I could see Spanish, but Japanese? I showed my teenage son, but he said it wasn't Japanese text. It was a language he'd never even seen before and he's really into Asian cartoons and whatnot. The shower was completely broken. It only drizzled water and that water was scorching hot. Not useful at all. We weren't able to take a shower while we were there, and believe me, we needed to. Later, we joked about it saying that we we felt like we were in Chevy Chase's National Lampoon's vacation movie, where nothing goes right. It's funny now, though obviously it wasn't back then. It is those kinds of trips that create truly vivid memories. But the first night, we hardly slept. There were weird noises of things moving outside the mobile homes, things sniffing and scratching in the dirt outside. It was horrible. We told ourselves it was just coyotes, but I know coyotes, and they don't make those noises. The next morning, my husband took a walk in the fields around us. When he got back, he told us to pack our bags. The horses weren't missing at all, they were all in a field about a mile out from our mobile homes. All lying in a field, flies buzzing around where their corpses lay. As we left for the Big Bend area, we decided to stop in at the other ranch we had considered. It was nauseating to discover that the place was perfect. The bedrooms were authentic looking, the beds were old Texas-style beds, the kind that are a large box with the mattress on it. The horses were out front, the TV worked and had HBO. They had an amazing shower room and the dining room had ceiling fans. Oh my, what a mistake we had made. It would only have been an extra $10. Needless to say, the lesson we learned was to never, ever book a stay anywhere without first seeing pictures. That seems like duh advice for today. But back then there wasn't much we could do about it. In any case, it was definitely an adventure.